Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grassoff and this is RFI Group's Insight-backed podcast, focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. On today's episode, we hear advice and examples from both sides of the fence when it comes to seeking investment within fintech. From a fintech perspective, we have Christina Alba-Okoa, CFO from Oak North. And from the investor perspective, we have Toby Heap, founding partner at H2 Ventures. Sarah Hollinshead, our group head of content, caught up with Christina, who shares her unique perspective from the CFO point of view on securing investment, the key reasons behind their success within their first year, and some honest advice to other fintechs who have recently launched. Hello, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's edition of the Global Digital Banker podcast. Today, we're talking all about fintech advice and investment. And obviously, you come from one of the biggest success stories in the UK. So it's really fantastic to have you joining us. Hey, Sarah. No, it's great to join you. Uh, It was really good to join you in other events that you've organized and really happy to share uh, my experience in Oak North and share with the rest of people the journey that the team has uh, been having in the last couple of years. Obviously, the CFO is a unique position and very involved in that investment side and the and the sort of growth of the company. So we'll run through a few questions to kick off. I guess you're in, in sort of a position, not many are, uh, is that you're a fintech and a bank. So can you please start by sharing a bit about Oak North and sort of how the idea for the company came about? Yeah, sure. So this is not going to be my my own view. This is coming from Rishi Kausla and Joel Perlman that were the founders. Uh, they're true entrepreneurs. And uh, when they started their prior business, Copalamba, that was a, a sourcing business for other uh, lending and financing entities, they were looking for the debt to grow their own business. And they really struggled to find that in the UK. And the only way they could do it was to put either personal guarantees or offer their own homes as guarantees. And that's not what they wanted to do. Mm. Sometime later, they went to the US and found that they could secure up to 10 million uh, with Citi with no much more than just their business plan and their ideas. Over the following eight years, they grew that business. In the end, it was sold for a large amount of money. They always kept into their minds that the big issue that was in the UK market and in many other European markets and in the rest of the world. So what they found was that at the smaller end of the market, loans that are under half a million pounds, there's a lot of suppliers that are providing several options for financing that are semi-automated or fully automated. So you could get a loan within seconds up to 24 hours pretty easily in a predefined structure. Mm. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got all the larger banks that above 25, 30 million pounds are going to be offering you bespoke and a large variety of uh, predefined products as well because they've got a full team of originations and underwriters that are going to be working on your corporate and structured finance possibilities. Then in the middle, you find all these variety of needs that are between this half a million and 30 million pounds that are being neglected. So it's not that they're not being served, they're underserved. So we found that in these uh, entrepreneurs that are in the phase of scaling up their businesses needed this ticket size and they needed it in a way that was understanding their own business needs. Then the other thought that they had was Let's make then the funding side, the liability side of the balance sheet as simple as possible. 
Where is the biggest liquidity pocket in the market? It's retail. It's the money of all the families and individuals that goes into savings and that it's in current accounts pretty much earning nothing. So we are offering very attractive savings deposits through the internet that allow our retail clients to just go open an account within minutes and deposit their funds with us. I mean, there's no doubt it's a brilliant proposition. And what's quite remarkable is if you think about over 80% of businesses will fail in their first year. And in your first year of operating, you know, you managed to not only break even, but actually achieve profitability, which is an absolutely amazing feat. It'd be great to just sort of learn more about that. What do you think were some of the key reasons behind this success in your first year? And what advice would you give to other fintechs who have recently launched? That's a really good question, uh, Sarah. And I like to say, well, there's a secret sauce that this is the way it happened. That there isn't. <laughs> it's like a recipe. Yeah. I love cooking, right? This is my CFO person side. You must have the right ingredients. And then if you're cooking too fast, just load the fire. And, and this is the same here. So we have to be very clear that if there is an idea you start with and it's not working, test it. And then Stop it, can mm-hmm. it, and start a new one. So you have to negotiate everything and question everything. Be frugal in the approach and don't be wasteful in money or time. The fact that both Joel and Rishi had their own prior uh, company with success, this recipe worked for them. When something is not working, don't keep doing it. What from a CFO point of view, it's great to see. It's just a conversation, common sense, move on. <laughs> you make it sound so easy. It is easy. It is easy. <laughs> <laughs> it is easy to run a hugely successful business. No big deal. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So as a company, you provide lending solutions to businesses, obviously to foster their growth. But it'd be interesting to hear your journey on securing your own investments for your growth and you know, sharing any roadblocks that you faced or tips for standing out amongst your competitors within that process. Yeah. So how do you have someone trust with just an idea, give me money, this is going to be a great success and it's going to give you a good return in the long term. That is pretty much impossible. That's why the very beginning, the founders had the money that they had earned uh, from the Copalamba exit and then they decided to invest into the business. And, and that was way to start a business such a bank the fintech side not so much but the bank side because it's highly regulated and has big requirements of regulatory capital it required a sizable amount of money to put in there in equity and they did mm. then once that was done and they started believing in it and not only with their money but their time they were able to secure some family uh, money as well and then after that in november of 2015 they secure 66 million pounds from India Bulls. And India Bulls uh, had been an investor in the past from Rishi and the business where he was before. And they knew him and Joel, how successful they can be in executing and they believed in them. That was what gave biggest leverage to grow. And that's what allowed Oak North to grow in the UK to the point where then finally in um, October 2017, we were able to secure a new race of total of 250 million pounds between primary and secondary because we were able to prove to them that with the initial investment, that money was returning profitable because of the frugal-focused approach to execution into a neglected market niche. 
just to go into that a little bit further, 2017 was an incredible year for Oak North. I mean, I've got a list here of all of the insane achievements. So as you said, you secured 250 million of investment, which is the largest fintech raise to date in the UK. You appeared on the Leap 100 list for the most exciting and fast growing companies in the UK. And you achieved unicorn status with a company valuation of over 1 billion. I guess the question is, what's next for Oak North? You know, where are you looking to grow or expand your offering in the near future? We've achieved a lot, but now it has proven to us that through this approach, the opportunity is there. The mm. UK market still is neglected. While we were doing the equity race meetings, all of these investors and more that we met us, but who is the other competitor? Who is the other market leader is doing this in the UK? And we asked them, well, we know what we're doing. You are obviously looking to put your equity in other businesses. Please tell us who is doing the same that we're doing elsewhere. And they said, well, no one. Nobody could name anybody else that did exactly what we do. They do something similar that cover a sizable amount of the spectrum, but not exactly this one. So mm. as we would believe, there's a lot of room for us to keep growing. We are expecting to end this year now, 2018, by 1.5 billion further this year to enhance our return on equity. That is what all the investors want. Mm. So we are all very motivated to do that. Now that we've proven that the UK has this capacity, we have tested, is this also a niche that exists in other markets? And Morgan Stanley said, we've got many contacts in other places that would be delighted to speak to you. Mm. And so what other kind of partnership opportunities do you see for banks and fintechs in the future? There is many. So from the portfolio monitoring point of view, we can partner with uh, companies that provide accounting solutions for SMEs, small companies. The SMEs don't require to have a huge accounting department or engage with big uh, accounting firms and spend huge fees. So it's win-win for the economy. Uh, We keep hosting our service in uh, AWS. So anything that is cloud-enabled, we could partner with. And that is only for the UK. Mm. And so lastly, just a nice question. It doesn't have to be within financial services, but who do you look for for innovation within digital? Hmm. Good question. Uh, in front of me, I have a big green of acorn machine, right? And it's just the standby. It's anyone that provides anything that enables the lending to SMEs. Say we want to do um, lending to uh, hotels in the world. So we could partner with... We could partner with any other uh, hoteliers that are providing information and that would enrich our credit decisions. And that goes for if we are lending to hotels, if we are lending to builders, uh, we will be partnering with, I don't know, Zoopla. I don't know. I'm just making it up. But any sector that uh, has information about that sector, anything in the economy requires financing. So any of those. Mm, it seems like there's a lot of scope. Yeah, a lot of scope. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was a really great overview into sort of the journey of Oak North and, and how you've got to achieve so many incredible things in such a short amount of time. And as I said, really unique to hear it from a CFO perspective. So thanks for joining us. Yep. Thank you, Sarah. Chloe James, our group media director, sat down with Toby to discuss some big trends within fintech at the moment, how fintech owners can seek external investment, and Toby's two key ingredients for achieving business success. 
Toby Heap, welcome to RFI's podcast. I thought it would be great to start off the podcast today. We're talking fintech investment and advice, which is obviously a space that you're so heavily involved in. But it would be great just to start with a little bit about you, about who you are and who is H2 Ventures. Yeah, sure. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me. My background is as a scientist. I started as a thermal physiologist and, and used a lot of artificial intelligence in that space. And then I started doing my own startups. Uh, so this was the early 2000s and did a series of startups and uh, some of those went reasonably well. And so then I started investing in other startups. But at some point, I started to find it a bit frustrating that it was not efficient investing in early stage startups in a sort of a bespoke one-off way. And so I got talking to my brother who was at the time running UBS's global asset management business for the Asia-Pacific region. And uh, he and I saw this opportunity around financial services where we could he could see a lot of headwinds in the industry. And so we decided to start an accelerator, a fintech accelerator, to try and get on the right side of that wave of change that we could see coming. That's amazing. I love how you're, you were on the sort of flip side of it. So you actually know exactly what a startup would want because you've been in that startup space before, which is amazing. How does the accelerator program that you run work and how would you say it differs? How have you set it apart from other accelerator programs out there, both in this market and also around the world? Well, when we had the idea to do this, there were no other uh, fintech accelerators. By the time we started, there was uh, one in St. Louis called 630. Mm-hmm. Which started a few weeks before us, but uh, so when we started, it was it was quite different to do a vertically focused accelerator. At that point, most of the accelerators were just mm-hmm. sort of any tech startups. But over time, I guess we've found our niche, and one of the I guess key differences between us and most fintech accelerators is that most accelerators are aligned in some way with one or a number of strategic corporate partners, um, whether that's as sponsors sort of funding the program or whether it's as investors investing through the program into the startups. And we have avoided that to ensure that we we stay focused on the startups that we invest in and ensuring that they get the best possible outcomes. And, and our concern is that while there can be a lot of advantages being aligned with corporates, I guess there can be limitations. So for instance, in, in the fintech space, we see two common scenarios. One is where it's a startup that's wanting to have the financial services industry as a customer. And so in that case, if you're partnered with one or two of, say, the big banks, then as a founder, whether or not this is the reality, often the founders will perceive that if they partner up Mm -hmm. through an accelerator with one or two of the banks, then that's going to kind of lock them out of the rest of the market. The other type of startup is the startup that's really trying to disrupt the core business of the existing incumbents. And those startups will often, again... It may not be the reality, it often isn't the reality, but they may perceive that partnering up um, with a program that's backed by the sort of traditional incumbents may in some ways hamper them. Absolutely. What are some of the big trends that you see when it comes to fintechs? We've seen so much happening in the payment space, but then I guess, you know, even more so more recently, there's, you know, reg tech is becoming huge. It's it's really interesting to see what else is out there. What, is, what are some of the things that you're seeing that, that are great kind of emerging fintech companies? And then how do you think that they best do seek investment and successfully seek investment? Mm, sure. So, We see, we've always seen this through the different rounds of the accelerator we've done, that startups come in waves. 
And mm. it's obviously to do with what's going on around them. And so, you know, when we started, we got a whole wave of sort of wealth tech startups that were trying to disrupt the wealth industry. Lately, the current wave is still, we're seeing a lot of blockchain startups, you know, a lot of them not very exciting for us. But we're starting to see some pretty interesting ones too. There's a big debate there at the moment, isn't there, about blockchain? I keep reading about whether it's a bubble or whether it's a fad and you hear it kind of is polarizing people at the moment. You're either kind of one way or the other. Look, I think there's definitely a bubble. Mm, okay. But within any bubble, there's usually some really solid businesses. Mm. It's just that lots of other people jump on the bandwagon too. And so it's a matter of, sort of being able to filter that. The most interesting trend for us at the moment is at the start, a lot of fintech startups were really sort of biting off little pieces at the edge of this sort of traditional industry. And what we're seeing, I think, lately is businesses that are starting to get more and more into the, the core businesses of the, the big incumbents. And so yeah. part of that's driven by regulators and, and policymakers that are sort of trying to encourage that and trying to make that more viable in terms of making changes to regulation. And another big part of it is just consumer appetite and awareness. So, mm. you know, consumers are trusting more and more the idea of using a small, you know, startup that they haven't known that brand their whole life. And also they're just aware that there's these other options. I mean, in the early days of fintech, people just didn't know that there were were other options. So true. It's funny. A couple of years ago, it was kind of like, who are these companies? You've never even heard of them. But actually, just in only a few short years, they're becoming almost household names. People know who they are. I expect going to see more and more of that over the coming years as, as basically they get time under their belt. You're absolutely spot on in terms of, we always say to our startups, your biggest competitive threat is not other startups because the other startups are helping you. They're sharing the load with you mm. of educating them. And the more that they're doing that, the more it overcomes really your biggest competitor, which is just complacency. Mm -hmm. It's just consumers not realizing or not bothering to change. Mm -hmm. And so we think that the more of these startups you have in the space, um, the more that it's just going to educate the market that there are other options. Yeah, I I totally agree. And it's great to see so much more of it. What kind of companies are you looking to invest in at the moment and why? And perhaps... Companies that you look at that have really great innovative propositions in that digital space? We've evolved a bit over the years. So we started focused on fintech. Now we do fintech data and AI. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what we look for is amazing teams that we think can execute and that have a bold ambition to to really change the industry. If they don't have an ambition like that, then it's not worth the difficulty and the risk of, of starting a startup. Would you ever find an amazing team, perhaps their proposition isn't 100% spot on, but you think we can work with you on that given your expertise and H2 Ventures expertise and kind of help them mould it because the team is so strong and you think these people could make something a winner? Absolutely. I'd say that is most often the case when we make an investment. Right. It's oh, very okay, rare cool. that we someone pitches to us an idea and we go, yep, that is spot on. <laughs> Even if we did say that is spot on, who are we to know? Our process generally is teams come into the program and they spend the first, you know, two, four, six, 12 weeks just trying to validate that they actually have a solution to a problem that is a real problem to real customers. And generally, more often than not, what they come in with is vastly different to what they end up with once they've gone through that process. Can you cite any kind of roadblocks or concerns that they have 
when it comes to launching that that you help them overcome? Yeah, so going back to that last question, you know, team Hmm. is probably the number one thing they need to get right. So often when teams come into the program, they have some of the elements of what they need, but there's usually some gaps. And so part of it is helping them to identify and understand those gaps so that they can work out, firstly, do they need to fill them straight away or are they things they can have on the sort of roadmap to fill at some point? But a startup is especially an early stage startup, is only as good as its team. And so a big part of it is sort of helping to solve that piece. The second piece of what I talked about before, which is just product market fit. If you can't convince yourselves and have data to show that you genuinely have found a real problem for real people, that it's a big enough group of people and that they're willing to pay to, to solve it. Given that we invest in very early stage businesses, we're really just focused on those two things. It's helping get the team in place and the right team so that they can execute around a, a real problem that they've found and, and proven. It has to make sense when you have that kind of aha moment, if you like, of going, this actually could really help people. Yeah, that's right. And if you can show tangible quantitative evidence, you know, mm. if you can show people are signing up and coming back and using the product or paying for the product, you know, that's the kind of traction you need to raise capital. Absolutely. The truth's in the data. You've got to have your numbers right always. Right. Just wrapping up, Toby, thank you. I've loved speaking to you. We always like to wrap up with this partnership piece between more traditional banks out there and the fintech space and looking to the future. Just your view on opportunities for partnership there. We have a lot of industry listen to the RFI podcast, so very keen to hear your view. Mm. So this is the sort of perennial question that comes up a lot for us is is how can corporates and startups work more effectively together and, and how should they work together? The reality is it is always going to be very difficult for a very small early stage startup to work effectively with a very large risk averse organization. And we really believe that the best thing that the big banks can be doing is building really good personal level relationships with the founders of those businesses Mm. and building those relationships on sharing what learnings can be shared and genuinely um, looking to help share thoughts and Mm. and insights Mm. for the express purpose of one day buy a startup when they are at a scale that can actually move to the dial for that big organization. You know, having a, an equity stake in a tiny startup for a large, large organization, it, it just, you know, it's not going to move the dial for them, but there's a lot of headline risk there. You know, we've often had um, banks say to us, look, we're interested in things when they're at the kind of multi-billion dollar buyout sort of scale, because that's the kind of thing that actually can make a change. But the thing is, when you get to that point, if you haven't built those trusted relationships, you have no advantage over anyone else. Mm. when that transaction sort of comes to a head. I think that's some really fantastic advice, Toby. Get to know what's going on within your market. That's right. As, you know, it's not hard to build a good personal relationship with someone if, you, if you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, and keep the lines of communication open right. so that you can be across everything they're doing. Toby, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Love talking to you. Some great insight there from someone who knows exactly what it's like to be right there at the front line. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Chloe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check out our Instagram, Global Digital Banker, Twitter at GDB Podcast, or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. 
If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdvpodcast at rfigroup.com.